blessed because of those donations. We were able to, once we get all of the backpacks uh, to zero gravity, we were able to distribute 55 full backpacks with all of the materials needed uh, that's required by the elementary school system to children in our community. We were also able to bless dozens of families in our community and some that came from even outside of Holland and Zealand just because they heard from City on the Hill what we were doing. We also were able to bless uh, Africa's child with donations and hopefully those donations will return uh, to dollars that will go toward adopting children who can be twice adopted, adopted into a loving family, but also adopted into God's loving family. We were able to help out his harvest stand, Holland Rescue Mission as well. Tons of people, and I want to give you thanks on behalf of Chanel, Tyrese, Derisha, Shadarika, Dariasia, Derek, Shakira, Carmen, David, Xavier, Christian, Vanita, Nate, Shana, Blanca, Estella, Nayeli, Sylvia, Valerie, Ader, Layla, Catherine, Tyler, Cadence, and Abigail, Michael, Dominic, Laura, Tyler, Jada, Jennifer, Paul, Jackson, Calvin, Louie, Chanel, Tyrese, I already said them, uh, Teresa and her two children and her nephew and her daughter, Sheila, Jeremy, Adam, Deshay, and Jay, to not even mention those who we've blessed through Barnabas, extending our welcome to them through the backpacks and the clothes that they came and picked up as well. And on behalf of Kevin uh, Beanie and Zero Gravity, Sarah, Chris, Bryce, and Abigail, Sawyer, Liam, and Layden, they thank you as well. Operation Blessing truly gave us the opportunity to bless our community. I applaud you for all the sacrifice that you went through, all the shopping that you did for school supplies, um, all the needs that you were able to meet. Can you give God praise for that? I'm glad that our Scripture read on uh, your computer at home. It may even help your family become more 
acquainted with books of the Old Testament. They do even the hard stuff. They do the book of Hebrews. It's fantastic. Will you take a look at this video summary of the book of Philemon? wronged you or owes you anything, 
charge it to me and I will repay it. So in this request, we see the heart of Paul's gospel message being acted out. It's first of all about reconciliation. It's just like he told the Corinthians. In the Messiah, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sins against them. So in this situation, Paul is putting himself in the place of Jesus. He will absorb the consequences of Onesimus' wrongdoing. He will pay the cost so that he can be reconciled to Philemon. But Paul's message was about more than just a legal transaction. It's also about a point of view. Onesimus and Philemon and Paul are all equals before God. They all share the same need for forgiveness. And so the ground is level which means that Philemon and Onesimus can no longer relate to each other as master and slave. They're family members. They're brothers in the Messiah. Or as Paul told Philemon and the whole church of Colossae, in God's new family, people are not Greek or Jewish or circumcised or uncircumcised or foreigners or uncivilized or slave or free, but the Messiah is all and is in all. Paul closes the letter stating his confidence that Philemon will do even more than Paul's requested. And he asks him to prepare a guest room because he wants to visit as soon as he gets out of prison. And then with some final greetings, Paul ends the letter. Paul's letter to Philemon is powerful for many reasons. It's the only letter where Paul doesn't explicitly mention Jesus' death or resurrection, and this is not an oversight. He doesn't need to explain the cross with words because he's demonstrating it through his actions. Paul's embodying here the meaning of the cross. He has made himself the place through which Onesimus and Philemon are reconciled to God and then to each other. This letter also shows us that the implications of the good news about Jesus, they are extremely personal and never private. The fact that Philemon and Onesimus are now brothers in the Messiah, it makes their master-slave relationship totally irrelevant. The family of Jesus' people is the place where all are recipients of God's grace. It's a new kind of society, or a new humanity, as he called it in the letter to the Colossians, where people's value and social status, it's not defined by race or gender or social or economic class. In the Messiah, there are simply new humans who are equal partners, who share together in God's healing mercy through Jesus. And that, Paul's letter to Philemon, is all about. Just seeing that six-minute video there, aren't you really grateful for the gospel? I mean, aren't you so glad that we're together, that we're brothers and sisters together in Christ, and that God's trying to bring us more together? And you got a good definition of reconciliation. I'm going to give you the Greek word, alasso, which means uh, an exchange between two parties. You see, for there to be real reconciliation, there has to be an exchange of the situation. One party has to take something that's in the situation upon himself so that the hostility, the barrier, the breakdown that occurs in the relationship is taken care of so that they might be together again. And we see that all throughout narrative, through film, through story, uh, through books and novels and stuff like that. A person who is willing to sacrifice, to pay, to go to the extra effort, to swim the, the, the longest ocean, to climb the highest mountain, to search and to go on a quest to win back something that is lost. No greater story, though, uh, can be told than the story of the gospel that, 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 that what's so crazy about the reconciliation of Jesus, this exchange that occurred with Jesus was, is the very people who were flogging him.
spitting upon him, that were cursing him, were the very people that he was exchanging his life for to save. Isn't that incredible? That's reconciliation. And that's what this story is all about. Reconciliation involves a change in a relationship between God and man, or man and man, restoring harmony and fellowship. But there has to be an exchange there. In Romans 5, 6-11, Paul says that before reconciliation, you and I, we were powerless, we were ungodly, we were sinners, we were enemies. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14 says that God removed the wall of hostility between holy God and sinful man to bring us back together. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, For if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed, and the new has come. That's reconciliation, and that's something to be excited about practicing in our lives every day of our lives. There is a greater stage for the gospel that we can go to in our lives if we're willing to be reconcilers. All right? So now let's look down at the passage. We made it all the way to verse 17 last week, and we will pick up there in verse 17. Already the appeal has been made to Philemon. Now he's going to give the very condition of the, the appeal. It sounds like a demand, but really it's still written in a grace-appealing nature. So he says in verse 17, So if you consider me your partner, koinonis, Attached to that word koinonia that they showed on the screen from verse 6, that we're partners and we're sharers in the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he's wronged you at all, if he owes you anything, charge that to my account. A phrase also used in a story that Jesus told about a good Samaritan, about a good Samaritan who did what a Hebrew priest would not even do. Pick up a man who was beaten along the side of the road, give him a place to stay, to heal his wounds, to be fed, and to get rest. Put it on my account. Verse 19, I, Paul, write with this my own hand. I will repay it. Paul is saying right there, I am standing in. My, my character, my name, my reputation is going to stand by this. To say nothing of your owing to me your own self. In verse 20 he says, yes brother, I want to benefit from you and the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me. Whoa, he is planning on coming back. One of the reasons why many of us believe that Paul is in a brief imprisonment in Ephesus rather than in Rome, because Paul is expecting to get out and to return back to Colossae to meet up with Philemon and with Onesimus and to see how did the gospel get practiced in that community. And he says, for I'm hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Do you see how he said that at the end? As he had welcomed Philemon, and Philemon has welcomed him, he's hoping by God's grace to be returned what a last final picture he gives to Philemon and is urging to him to receive Onesimus as a brother. Let's look closely now to verse 17. Look down there. Welcome is not always easy. It's not. And, and here's one of the reasons why welcome is not easy. We have from the world an idea that is not really reconciliation. It's called get over it, get past it. I'm over it. The world sometimes even uses that, that borrows and hijacks the term forgiveness 
um, and says that, oh, well, you don't really need to go to that other party. There doesn't need to be an alasso, an exchange where one does for the other what the other cannot do to make things right. You don't need to do that. Just get over it. Get past it. Many times I've, I've even been counseling with people who have been wronged and been hurt by someone else, and they say, no, I'm just not going to go to that person. I mean, I'm, I'm over it. I've forgiven him. The, the rest is, is, is really up to them. There's nothing really that I, else that I want to do about it. That is not reconciliation. And Paul says, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. This might not be easy, but pros lombano, welcome him. The word lombano means to take hold of, and pros in the Greek means toward or to you. And so it's take him into you. When he says welcome, he's literally saying take him into yourself. In fact, you could interpret the Greek here is to receive him as you would receive yourself. You make yourself important. You value yourself. Philemon, value him just as much. And we clearly pick up the great commandment love statement of Jesus in this welcome. Love your neighbor as yourself. We pick it up. The welcome is not always easy. So what does Paul say? He says, well, if you consider me koinonis, if you consider me a partner, he says what we have, Philemon, is unity. What we have is brotherhood. What we have is closeness. What we have is proslambano. We have welcome with each other. And in a world where everything is, everyone is watching to see if the gospel really changes the way that we behave, Welcoming people who normally would be enemies is a radical notion. Just look around you. How are people treating enemies these days? Shouting them down? Locking them out? Grinding them to powder and dancing on their graves? That's how people are dealing with enemies today. Our nation is filled with hostility and demand. I demand my right. I demand my right over you. If I have to crush you to get that right, I will do that. What seems to be the most popular method of handling differences today is to label your enemy as an unforgivable enemy, not worth taking to yourself. Not worth valuing as you would value yourself being received. Last November, I went up to Lansing to the State Board of Education to address the board on a very dangerous pr proposal that remains dangerous, by the way, concerning sexuality, gender identity, and the rights of parents as guardians of their own children. I was given three minutes to address the board, and since 400 people registered to speak to the board, I'm going to say that three minutes was probably a generous allotment. I was number 282, so I waited for four hours in a very tense lobby downstairs because there wasn't enough room in the meeting hall for all of us. I could not get to the actual room where they met until number 151 had spoken uh, because there just weren't enough seats to accommodate us. So I listened to numbers 152 through 281 as I awaited my opportunity to speak. I heard gay, lesbian, transsexual, gender non-conforming people tell stories of great mistreatment by Christians. Now, of course, 
They had a different definition of love, which said, accept me the way that I am. Love is you letting me be exactly who I am and who I want to be. But they had other stories of being condemned, cut off from families, and in their eyes, they certainly felt that Christians lacked love. In fact, in the first couple hours that I was there, it seemed like two very opposing forces were there. Christians were huddling in certain sections and talking with each other. There was even a prayer and worship meeting that occurred outside, but there was very little taking in of an enemy anywhere in that lobby. So it's hard to apply the gospel of Jesus Christ where it's not wanted. It's hard to speak to someone who calls you a bigot and calls you an enemy of their life. I had seven pages of written material that I would kept on shrinking down and shrinking down as I heard these other stories and cutting out if someone else had already mentioned something that I had written. But then by the time I got there, as number 282, I had to take the majority of my time to apologize to, to this group of people that are dearly loved by God on behalf of the church. I had to explain that the dialogue that day about gay rights, that it related first to the gospel, first and foremost because everyone was asserting their rights, everyone was claiming rights, and yet Jesus had laid down his rights for all of the people that were in that room. Regardless of the rights that they were asserting, something radical, a lasso had already taken place, and that was Jesus laying down his own life for the lives of everyone in the room. I came there wanting to push back. I came there wanting to give good arguments against this proposal. I wanted to, to defend my little community of Zealand and our school system. But really, I left wanting to give up anything to save souls. I left wanting to just win one of those people to Jesus. Welcome is not always easy. And yet, look at the welcome that Jesus performed for us in the first gospel substitution. The first exchange that ever occurred, reconciliation was initiated by, by God. The scripture says that God in Christ was reconciling us to himself. God welcomed the substitutionary <coughs> atonement of his son in our lives. The first welcome extended to us by God is through Jesus Christ who made it possible for God to welcome us to himself. When God looks at the Christ-receiving Christian, the person who has, by faith, received the grace that God has to offer through the substitutionary atonement of Jesus for sin, Jesus taking on my sin upon himself so that I might live forever with God, when God sees that, he sees Christ's work. He sees his cleansing Blood. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 on the screen. For our sake... You get the idea of Lombasso there? You get the idea of exchange, reconciliation? For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Who did the exchange? Jesus did the exchange. The substitutionary atonement of Christ 
is the gospel to us. We were welcomed to the Father through Jesus doing what we could not do. Now look at 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. What an exchange. That he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh. But being made alive in the spirit. We have found somehow a barely sanctified position of forgiving someone or getting over someone or, or, or getting past something without offering welcome. There have to be two parties for one party to receive to himself another. Come on, let's be like Jesus and let's go to that other party. If you want to be, as Paul is calling Philemon here this morning, if you want to be a gospeler, well, the gospel, once welcomed, it causes welcomed sinners to come to God. It calls them to Jesus' welcome. Even people who have sinned against us when we display the gospel, it welcomes them to God. But when you're a gospeler, like Paul says here, you see that a small payment is in view of an immense cost. A small payment is in view of an immense cost. Look back down now to verses 18 and 19. If he has wronged you at all, all right, Paul's covering it all. If he's wronged you at all, Christ died for all of the sins of the world. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Paul is saying, I have a wealth of resources because I have received those immeasurable riches and that incomparable power from God. I've been gospeled by Jesus Christ to my experience on the Damascus Road in Acts chapter 9. I have received immeasurable riches of God's grace and therefore by account, and he really is talking about a financial account there. He really is willing to pay real money, real cost. To gospel Philemon, so Philemon might be encouraged even more to gospel Onesimus. He says, charge it to my account. And then verse 19, he says, I, Paul, write this with my own hand, I will repay it, to say nothing of you owing me even your own self. He's not guilting there, he's not shaming there, he's trying to show the massive difference of this small expense, this small payment of the immense cost that was already paid. I mean, you got gospel. All of your sins got taken away by one, Jesus, who took away your sins. Should not the gospel in me guarantee that I'd be a forgiving person? That I would forgive like Jesus forgives? Should not the gospel seek to overthrow my societal perspective in any way? If I see people in a certain class of rich or poor, young and old, Jew or Gentile, indigent or immigrant, mustard eater or happy person, shouldn't the gospel, shouldn't the gospel in me guarantee that I'd be a reconciler? He says, I'll pay. Paul says, I'm not going to call you to anything that I wouldn't be called to myself. I'll pay. Charge it to my account. He's willing to do exactly what the Good Samaritan was willing to do. Onesimus is helpless to change his situation. Think about it. Someone 
other than Onesimus may, must pay to make this right. Even if he were re to return to his master and promise to pay an even greater debt than one that was secured against his slavery. Even if he were willing to work even harder and promise to give more work and service to his master, there is still the humiliation, the embarrassment of the offense in the first place. So Paul reminds Philemon that since his sins were paid by another, Jesus, he's willing to pay for another's sins. What kind of encouragement must that have been to Philemon is now all he has to do now is a completely spiritual act. Welcoming isn't easy, but oh, it's a small payment in view of the immense cost that was paid by Christ as a partner. To the gospel, Paul is saying, I'll pay a price that's worth it. I'll pay, it's pennies to me, Philemon, to have you two restored and to be brothers in the Lord and to be partners in the gospel together. He's speaking from the heart of Christ follower who knows that Jesus paid the price that he could not pay. When we see the gospel, in light of all the wrongs and the offenses that we have experienced, isn't it a small price to pay in order to change the entire equation with someone else and to point them to the immeasurable riches of God's grace? Don't you want to point people to something higher, something bigger, something more immense? N.T. Wright says this. He says, mercy owns most praise when anger is fully justified. You and I, we have been wronged. You and I, we have been sinned against. Husbands and wives, you know how I start out premarital counseling with new subjects? I say, hey, turn to your fiance right now and say, baby, I love you. And she goes, baby, I love you. Baby, I love you. Now, I'm going to sin against you more than anyone else in your life. That's life. We do get wronged. We do get sinned against. But how endless is the source of God's grace that we can dip into? Because mercy owns most praise when anger is fully justified. Paul says, Paul says, Philemon, I know he's wronged you. And you'd be justified in being angry. No one is saying that Philemon was not incredibly, embarrassingly wrong. He would have been right to be angry. He would have been justified. But Paul goes beyond justification to grace. And he rejoices in the gospel requiring a great reversal of fortunes. If you remain locked in an unforgiving heart today, Christian, hear God. Listen to the Holy Spirit here this morning if you're listening on the podcast. If you count the price too high to forgive, would you? The gospel pleads with you here this morning. Would you today look at the price that God paid for your own sins? Again. And then consider the cost again. And see if the price just got a whole lot lower. That's a small price compared to the immense penalty that Jesus paid for us. And thirdly, Paul is going to speak about refreshing that can only occur in Christ. Refreshing that can only occur in Christ. He says, yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. 
There's something in Jesus that's going to occur. This reconciliation thing, it's all about Jesus. It's in Jesus. This forgiveness thing, it's all in Christ. You dip into the gospel, you dip into an endless resource. People who forgive, they remind us of the unlimited forgiveness of God. The unlimited wealth that they have of the grace of God to empower them. People who welcome those who previously wronged them are ones who demonstrate the power of the gospel and the limitlessness of its riches. Isn't it refreshing to drink living water? To drink water that keep, keeps on refreshing your soul? Peter even said in his second sermon in Acts chapter 3 verse 19, he says, Therefore repent and return so that your sins might be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. God's a refresher. Oh man, how great to receive refreshing from God. Look at Ephesians 1 up on the screen. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Wow. Incredible power that we have from Christ. May the eyes of our heart be, in, heart be enlightened, be refreshed by the gospel. And how refreshing when we experience grace. My final illustration this morning, it comes from really, a, I would say, a very unlikely source. A source that usually only displays combative attitudes. It comes from a political source. It comes from Fox News that I read last night. It's the story of Angel Holscher Hatfield, who identifies with a young unwed teenager named Maddie, whose private Christian school refused to allow her to walk to receive her diploma because she became pregnant before graduation. And here's what Angel says. While I understand the school's desire to teach their students lessons about the consequences of sin, sin has consequences. Sin has consequences. Don't sin. Don't have sex before you are married. Sex is an act of marriage. There's no such thing as premarital sex. I, she says... While they wanted to teach the students maybe a lesson about sin, I also think the events of her life could have provided students with a lesson about grace. The grace that caused Jesus to tell a woman in sin, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. You see, I know something about this, says Angel. You see, once upon a time, I was this girl. I became pregnant outside of marriage while barely out of my teen years. Rebelliousness. Had set in and I skated in sin, believing the big lie that there were more pleasures to be found out in this world than in God. And driven by fear, I hid my pregnancy for five months and I knew that the shame and the guilt that I carried would only amplify, plus usher in condemnation once others learned my secret. Was I really up for this exposure? Like Maddie, I was raised in a Christian home where we upheld Christian principles. And we embraced biblical values. In fact, my father was a pastor. And this further enhanced my anxiety 
as I struggled to tell my parents about my pregnancy. It weighed heavily on me, especially in knowing that another decision, a secret one, not to have my baby could rid me of all of that shame. The day I finally mustered up the strength and the courage and confided in my father, something extraordinary happened. My father raised his head, excuse me, my father's soldiers, shoulders sagged and hung his head. Momentarily, we sat in silence with me holding my breath, awaiting his reaction wearing the weight of that certain disappointment and maybe immediate anger. Then there was this indescribable and overwhelming feeling of shame that was washing over me in waves during that silence. My father raised his head and he looked at me with tears in his eyes. And he said, honey, I'm, I am disappointed. I am. And then it was my turn to hang my head You've made poor choices, which now have consequences. He continued, it won't be easy, and there will be struggles and a hard path ahead of you, but I love you. And now I figure I've been given even more to love. Wait, what? My mouth was agape. Before I could respond, my father got up from his chair and he reached over and he wrapped me in his arms and simply held me. He took me into himself. It was just what I needed and not anything that I expected. And tears ran down my face. I'm so sorry, Dad. I'm so sorry. Will you forgive me? What I encountered was something that I'd never fully grasped before, though I'd been taught it for years. Grace. Grace, grace, God's grace. I didn't get what I deserved, but I certainly fully received what I had been taught. Grace swept over me and unleashed its power, connecting both my head and my heart. The only way I can describe it is that grace is the gift of a giant exhale, holding one's breath and waiting for what most certainly should come to instead then receive the free pass that no one, absolutely no one, could expect. That grace moment propelled my life in a new direction. I confessed my sins. I cleaned up my act and I charted a new course, fanned by the winds of grace and truth that was spoken to me. Wait a second. Where does Jesus fit into this? 
Where does he overrule the immediate thoughts of your heart and empower you to refresh another? Be reminded, Clint, of the great price that Jesus paid for you so that the price of the gospel will call you to pay something that you would gladly pay to yourself. But now you pay to take someone else in. First Baptist Church of Zealand, we should be held accountable to the gospel. Just as Paul is saying here, I'm going to come there and I'm going to be received back to you. I'm going to check out how the gospel worked out here. We should be held accountable to the gospel. Are we welcoming each other? Are we welcoming those whose sins would separate us back into the crazy love fellowship of the church? Who's telling you right now to be Jesus? Who's being Jesus to you? Who's calling you to live by grace? Let me take it to our neighborhood. Pastor Jeremy's going to come up and he's going to lead us in worship for a moment. We're going to respond to God. We are partners, and there are so many wins out there. And which win do you want? Do you want the single win that doesn't involve any type of an exchange? That's a hollow victory. How are we together taking life to the greater stage of the gospel? This lady writes in to Fox News, makes it to the front page, and says, Look, I know that we're often hostile toward wrong, but let me tell you how grace spoke to me. We're partners, and we can also pay what others cannot pay. Did you know that? We can pay what others cannot pay because we changed we grace the people of God. We have power and riches on our inside. We have the ability to do what's screaming, hostile, rights demanding, not yet born again, not yet saved by grace. Sinners cannot do. We can dispense grace. We can pay what others cannot pay. Remind you, mercy owns much praise when anger is fully justified. And we can welcome Christ in our relationships. We can be overthrown again by the gospel here this morning. As we're worshiping, look, I, I, I uh, uh, didn't bring real money. I brought Monopoly money from, oh, I, got, I brought it from the, book, uh, the, the game of life, right? And uh, that whole game is about how you can acquire the most money. But I'm going to distribute it to you. I just want you to take one of these. You know, $5,000 bills or $10,000 bills or $20,000 or $50,000 bills. And just remind yourself of the great price that was paid for you. Just receive it as the gospel. I'm asking you to just wave at me, wink at me or something. Reach out your hand, hand to me because I want to give each of you a reminder of the gospel. A reminder of what Paul says is, is the great price that Jesus paid for us that makes any price of reconciliation in our lives seem a whole lot, a whole lot smaller. All right? And just hold on to this as you worship. All right? And then when we dismiss this morning, I'm going to challenge you to do something else. I'm going to challenge you to take what you received and go find somebody else and give it to them. And you get it, you go find somebody else and you give it to them. Be an exchange. respond to God? Let's worship God. Come on, let's stand together. Let me pray. Father in heaven, how your word in Philemon calls us to pay a price that only we can pay to get us to the greater stage of the gospel. 
Oh, there's so many places right now where the gospel wants to work in our lives. Every day of our lives, it helps to be gospelers the way Paul encourages Philemon. But God, if there are many of us here this morning that are like Onesimus, we have, we have a price that we cannot pay. We have a stuckness. We have a debt that we cannot overcome ourselves. And we feel that helplessness and hopelessness and that distance from you again. Then let us simply receive here this morning the gift of grace and be reminded that Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. Just if you're Onesimus this morning or you just need to stand in the posture of him this morning again, receive that wonderful washing of grace and take that big giant exhale. Do it again. And then you can move to the posture of Philemon and be a gracer, be an exchanger. Take the wealth of God's grace and pass it around. Father, speak. Father, move. Father, work. In Christ's name, amen.